Hey listeners, and welcome to Season 2 of the Climate Ready Podcast. It's Alex Maroner here from the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, or AGWA. I hope you all enjoyed a nice break and are coming back to the show ready for more stories around the intersection of climate and water. We've got an awesome season lined up ahead of us with episodes on disaster risk reduction, climate change education, environmental flows, and lots of other great topics. Once again, I'm here with my Agua colleague and co-host for the show, Ingrid Timbo. Hello, everyone. We're very excited to be back with our first episode of the new season. In just a minute, we'll dive into our main interview for the episode, but we're also introducing a new segment this season, something we call Postcards from the Future. Stick around after our interview to check it out. And one last thing before we get started. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us your reviews. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and probably wherever you get your podcasts. We've also got a new Facebook page where you could find us using at Climate Ready Podcast. We want to hear from you and make this season even better than the last one. All right, last disclaimer before we get started. Fair warning that this episode will run a little bit longer than usual. We wanted to kick off season two with some great material, so we have a fantastic interview lined up, as well as a special introduction to a new segment on the show with Agua's very own coordinator. We'll get back to that later on. Today we wanted to cover a new area for us that has gained a little more prominence since the Fijians hosted COP23 last year, and that's the role of indigenous knowledge in climate adaptation and policy, as well as the impacts and activities around climate change for island nations in the Pacific. We've got a really great guest joining us all the way from New Zealand. You'll want to stick around to hear her thoughts on these super interesting topics. The Climate Ready Podcast is a product of AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, an informal network for water resources adaptation to climate change, focused on supporting experts, decision makers, and institutions within the water community to find common solutions for sustainable water resources management. The podcast is made possible by funding from the World Bank Group. For more on the World Bank and its role in supporting climate adaptation efforts, visit www.worldbank.org. We are honored to introduce our featured guest, Tui Shortland, who joins us today to talk about her work using indigenous ecological knowledge and Western science to help her community adapt to climate change. Tui is the co-founder of Native XP, an exciting new global indigenous tourism initiative. She has also worked on tribal businesses, including Ngatihine Forestry Trust, a land development enterprise valued at $28 million U.S., Tui is also the director of Te Kopu, Pacific Indigenous and Local Knowledge Center of Distinction, working with other indigenous and local knowledge centers around the world. She is also a board member of Cultural Survival and an alternate board member of the International Indian Treaty Council. And as if that's not enough, Tui has acted as a Pacific representative for various international committees and fora, including the International Indigenous Peoples Forum on Climate Change, the International Indigenous Forum on Biodiversity, and the Indigenous Peoples Major Group under the Sustainable Development Goals, among many others. Kia ora, Tui. Thanks for joining us today. Kia ora. It's really great to be talking today with you both. We just heard this very impressive and a little intimidating list of some of the work that you're up to. 
To kick this off, could you give our listeners a little bit of a background on some of this work and how you got involved in Indigenous environmental advocacy? Uh, Sure. So I have, uh, these days I have a focus on working around cultural indicators, establishing uh, community-based monitoring and information systems, environmental management and the use of traditional medicine knowledge and resilience work. So I'm currently I'm working in three local communities and with a school, which is a part of our organisation. And then also through the Indigenous and Local Knowledge Centre uh, through to Kōpū, we have over a dozen countries uh, spread across, uh, across the Pacific uh, where we support Indigenous people's organisations and capacity building Uh, raising visibility around their issues and um, accessing support. So I've kind of been in this area for over 10 years now and um, my work has evolved over time. But uh, my father was a traditional medicine practitioner and he he taught me um, about uh, the different values in the forest. And my mother, she did a lot of humanitarian work. So she kind of instilled the ethic in me around service to the people and things like that. So yeah, that's just a little bit about me. Again, we're really glad to have your perspective here on the podcast, especially since we happen to be recording this interview on International Women's Day. You're living proof that Indigenous women are often leaders within their own communities. And we know that women and Indigenous peoples are key to advancing sustainable development, eradicating poverty, and tackling climate change. However, despite increasing recognition of the importance of these populations, Indigenous female voices remain frustratingly absent in the global climate policy realm, at least at the decision-making level. As someone who occupies both the Indigenous and female space, and who works both locally and globally, you have a really unique insight into this issue. So I'm wondering, how has your identity influenced your work? And are there ways that we as an international community can do a better job of supporting and promoting Indigenous women, while at the same time avoiding appropriating or co-opting your messages? It's a great question, particularly for today. I think that my identity influences my work because it it's kind of my lens in which, you know, I interact with the world, being an Indigenous Uh, youngish woman in this Mm -hmm. space and understanding that as an Indigenous woman we have a different type of wisdom and we can bring a different texture of leadership uh, within you know the global space that is really uh, you know can complement you know diversity and, and different types of ideas because when we're addressing global challenges, we really need to be open to different knowledge systems and different ways of seeing and responding to um, what is going on. You know, I really feel like as an Indigenous woman, I have a strong ability to, you know, tune into the rhythms of Mother Earth because it's in my DNA. Uh, I was raised to do that in my community and, uh, you know, really just try to listen to what Mother Earth is trying to tell us. And then in terms of your second question around what the international community can do to better support and promote, I have experienced probably quite a bit of uh, 
discrimination in, in, in this area or, or assumptions around, you know, being youngish and being a woman and, say, for example, in governance bodies where I've held positions, at times new people have assumed that I'm the secretary or I'm the university intern. And I know I'm, uh, many women experience this. And I think that, uh, you know, I have sat on boards where I'm the only woman under 40 who is a female in the room, in a room of 10 people. But for me, like, I don't come into it feeling like I'm one out of 10. I, you know, I'm, I'm quite confident in being able to articulate and ensure that the position that I do hold, that I'm contributing and that I'm confident in doing so. And that also in the positions that I now hold, that I am encouraging other young women to come up as well and take the space. And I would like to definitely see more men, both non-Indigenous and Indigenous, uh, making that space as well. And I'd also like to see more gender equity policies. So not just for a reliance on people's personal initiative, but I'd like to see uh, policies embedded within institutions as well. And we'll continue to talk about some of the shifts that are needed in the adaptation and policy worlds. Some of that has to do with the way that we look at and perceive these resources we're working to protect. Oftentimes in the West, we think of environmental values strictly in terms of you know, their biophysical characteristics. However, there are many important cultural environmental values that are threatened by climate change as well. After decades, or really even centuries, um, of being largely ignored or flat out dismissed by Western science, in recent years there's been a growing interest in the concept of traditional ecological knowledge, or TEK. Can you explain what TEK refers to and why this body of knowledge might offer important insight for those of us working on climate adaptation? Even following on from, you know, this issue around uh, being Indigenous and being a woman and, and the decision-making spaces or, or influencing spaces, sometimes as a woman, when I was younger, I would feel like I had to emulate a man's way of decision-making and influencing. And it took some perspective for me to uh, really you know, begin to push back and, and and think, well, actually, no, I need to come from a strength-based approach. My, ne- my community needs to come from a strength-based approach in terms of how we are influencing our roots, our strength is in our traditional knowledge and our worldview and the way in which we see the world and therefore the way in which we express ourselves to the world. And so not only did we begin to take up these spaces of influence, we also began to uh, rise up together around our traditional knowledge. You know, we in my history, in my community's history, we have gone from uh, wanting to protect the knowledge from exploitation to being open to share, to beginning to articulate within the Western models how traditional knowledge can be appropriately shared and informed decision-making. So basically, yeah, traditional Traditional environmental knowledge or traditional ecological knowledge, indigenous local knowledge, it has so many sort of labels, but essentially, you know, it's the basis of the way in which we see the creation of the world, the embodiment of Mother Earth, Sky Father, 
for me as a Polynesian, you know, our creation stories are around that we descend from Mother Earth. And, you know, uh, particularly as Māori, we were uh, shaped out of the earth and life was breathed into us by the god of the forest, Tāne Mahuta, and life was also given to us by the other gods, so Tangaroa, the god of water. You know, he, he imbued in us the water that we have within our bodies and Tāwhiri Mātia, the god of the wind, he gifted to us our lungs and things like that. And so we also understand that from the gods through our uh, genealogical view of the world came the earth, the minerals, then the trees and insects, and then lastly came us as people. And we're on, we're, we're, you know, we're kind of the youngest grandchildren in the scheme of things related to everything. Everything has a spirit that we need to respect. And, um, and that, that pretty much for me is what sets us largely, in a very general uh, way of explaining it, sets us aside from science, you know, which is non-spiritual, not so holistic. Yeah. You mentioned um, kind of when you were talking about tech, making sure that it's appropriately shared. Could you like give an example of what you mean by that? There are ways in which knowledge is shared in Indigenous communities. And so we set up the Indigenous and local knowledge centres of distinction, one in each Indigenous region around the world, of which Te Kōpū is the Pacific one, because we wanted to facilitate that conversation around, okay, yeah, how do you share knowledge appropriately? Is it co-authoring? Is it access and benefit sharing agreements? Is it through biocultural community protocols? Is the research co-produced, co-designed? You know, and, and it's it's a multiple kind of scale approach that we're having to navigate our way through. But we believe that if we do it appropriately, it opens doors, it facilitates better cross-cultural understandings, and yeah, everyone benefits. The 23rd UNFCCC Conference of the Parties, or COP, was hosted by Fiji last November. At this COP, the international climate community was introduced to the concept of Talanoa, a Polynesian tradition that uses storytelling and conversation to resolve disputes, share ideas and knowledge, and build trust between people. This form of dialogue has been embraced by the UNFCCC as a way to improve non-state actor participation and strengthen parties' Paris Agreement commitments. How has this more inclusive approach differed from what you've observed in some of your earlier work with the UN on climate negotiations? I started out in UN Convention on Biological Diversity. I've been in, in that Indigenous caucus for around seven years now. And it's a very open decision-making process where, yeah. we, you know, we're not closed out of meetings, contact groups. Uh, we're able to take the floor and make interventions as multiple Indigenous uh, voices. And when I came into climate change um, at COP21, I was shocked. Yeah. It was really, you know, you know, that observers had such little access uh, into the key negotiations that impact on our lives. So uh, very thankful for the Talanoa Dialogue. Also uh, thankful for 
the parties initiating open informals around the local communities and Indigenous peoples platform. We believe that platform will be another opportunity uh, for non-parties to influence decision-making. Tui, if this Talanoa dialogue is, is an example of the UNFCCC starting to draw from Polynesian traditions, what are some lessons that we as a broader audience can learn from the Maori community about being adaptable? So... Māori, we are essentially, we're Polynesian and uh, the way in which we see the world, we are from an oceanic country which stretches from Hawaii in the north, Rapa Nui Easter Island in the east and Aotearoa New Zealand here where I stand. And that's a country of 10 million square miles. So maybe people didn't know so much about this before the movie Moana came out, yeah. but it has become more widespread, you know, understanding that we are ocean navigators, we're wayfinders. It's, again, that's in our DNA. And, uh, you know, the South Pacific, 20,000 islands, uh, we're half of the world's water. If we were a sphere unto ourselves, we would be the size of the moon. We're less than 1% land mass, actually. So when you are from an island and your closest neighbour is over 100 kilometres away, you just naturally begin to live lightly with the resources that you have, right? If you have seven plants that you can survive on, then you do everything you can to ensure that all those seven plants survive. Yeah. You know, we, we can't just walk over the hill and go and use the resources there, those of us from the Pacific. So over thousands of years, literally, we have adapted and, you know, come up with customs where we live more in harmony with Mother Earth, and particularly these things around water, how we manage water, adaptation of food, and how we read the climate, you know, because to get from, to get sail from Hawaii to Aotearoa, you need to have an intricate knowledge of ocean currents, of uh, the way in which waves move, migratory birds, migratory marine mammals, the climate. Yeah, I believe that the Pacific has a lot to share around our ancient knowledge, as well as the way in which we are adapting with the world today. You know, there's very unique geography that you've just mentioned in the Pacific and with these islands. And, and unfortunately, that has kind of presented some unique problems too. So for a lot of us that live in, in these larger landlocked countries, climate change, it's presenting a number of challenges, but it doesn't present nearly the same sort of sort of scale of challenges and, and it's really existential threat as it does with some of these small island nations in the Pacific, many of which they face the prospect of, of being maybe wiped off the map by rising sea levels, increased storm severity. But, you know, these countries, they did virtually nothing to contribute to global climate change, and yet you all are facing some of the most devastating consequences it brings up some difficult topics, including the idea of climate justice. So how are these communities working together 
to make sure that, that they have adequate assistance in terms of either mitigating or adapting to the effects of climate change? You know, climate change, 20, maybe more, 20 years, uh, the Pacific has been trying to tell the world that this is happening. We're very thankful that we're all together. We have a universal agreement since Paris that we can work together on. Te Kōpū and the work that we're doing is still pushing to allow space for Pacific Islanders to express our stories and the way in which we're assisting one another with mitigation and adaptation. Uh, Fiji has offered up islands for people to relocate to. Uh, We've done research. We know that if, as a last resort, people are forced to move, then their preference is to go to Fiji, Aotearoa, New Zealand or Australia. But, yeah, many don't want to leave still. And Te Kupu is also part of the Pacific Island Climate Action Network. So it's a, a collective of Indigenous peoples' organisations and NGOs. And our focus is around ensuring that people are able to move with dignity and thinking about how they can continue their cultural practices in the places that they are forced to relocate to. Loss and damage you know, is another issue that we're not letting go of at the global level, even though many developed countries don't want to enter into that discussion because then that has implications around who pays, you know, what is the compensation, (laughs) you know. uh, So those are tough negotiations that still continue. Really, basically, there's a diversity of of on-the-ground local responses as well that continue to need support and that we want to continue to share knowledge with other communities around. What are some of the needs in this region in light of the challenges you've just discussed? The challenges for us are to track the movements and to engage with people who are committed to staying and ensuring that they have the resources they need uh, for that. And, you know, to maintain hope around, you know, what we're facing in the Pacific, to continue to have good forecasts. You know, I see some of the forecasting around sea level rise very conservative for coming out of developed countries. It's not helpful for the Pacific in terms of uh, our decision making and our forecasting of what communities need. So we still need, you know, help from engineers and the community that can Uh, assist us to garner this expertise that we don't have in uh, the Pacific, technological transfer, all of that sort of thing. And ultimately, you know, you'll still hear um, people from all around the Pacific saying we're not drowning, we're fighting. You just mentioned a really important word that's worth following up on, this idea of hope. Does it feel either generally or for you more personally Do you feel hopeful? Do you feel like there are some achievable long-term solutions? Or does it sometimes kind of feel like you're just buying time when you're doing these adaptation and mitigation efforts? Have to stay hopeful, you know. uh, Very worried about our our, our children and our grandchildren's uh, future. But, you know, I think furthermore, extending our networks and our allies, getting the word out there, I'm still shocked when I meet on the street someone who doesn't believe that climate change will happen until another 50 years. That really concerns me deeply. But more, I I find, with everyone in the Pacific, it is a driving factor for us. 
you know, that's what gets us out of bed in the morning. That's what motivates us to, to do this work. So the headlines often focus on the big transformative threats of climate change that face small island nations, such as sea level rise or cyclones. But the threats to freshwater for these communities are also vitally important and often overlooked. Can you talk about one or two of the freshwater-related challenges facing different Polynesian communities and how your community in particular is addressing them? Yes, we now have uh, countries that uh, where it doesn't rain anymore in the Pacific, some countries that people have probably never even heard of. Uh, so again, getting these countries space to express what is going on and, and monitoring and reporting on them is, is really key. These countries are now having to ship in water because the impacts are two-way. It's not raining anymore, but also there is saltwater incursion into the freshwater aquifers. Right. Yeah, and so they're shipping in water, again, you know, loss and damage. The cost is being paid for by the countries at the moment and, and seeking aid and things like that. But, you know, we need a bigger conversation about, you know, strategically, globally, you know, is this okay? And, and how do we ensure that, as you said earlier, Alex, those who didn't cause this issue or, you know, a very uh, minimal way are now having to pay up for, for it all and uh, suffer from it. We also, in those countries, you know, just out of a bare need, people working in the agricultural areas, horticultural areas, uh, who are now adapting or uh, using different types of food sources, um, how to grow plants with just one or two drops of water. You know, that these kinds of adaptations are going on in the Pacific and, and we certainly need more support for them. Well, Tui, the last thing we wanted to touch on was kind of a connecting thread between many indigenous cultures. It's this idea of a truly reciprocal relationship between humans and the natural world. This belief that all living things are connected. We'd love it if you could leave our listeners with a better understanding of, of the importance of this concept and how we can ensure it gets passed on both within and outside your community. It's a very important thing for us to maintain, to share more around you know, how our bond to nature and therefore the bond of our children's relationship to Mother Earth is maintained. So in our organisation here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we have a school as well. We have 500 kids. And the other part of what we do with Te Kōpū is advise the teachers on how we embed traditional knowledge into the curriculum of the school. You know, how the kids are doing cultural monitoring of the rivers and the forests and what they're learning around traditional medicine and traditional foods and things like that because, you know, ultimately they're our future earth defenders and being able to share that with other Indigenous communities that are interested in doing so. And, and of course, with non-Indigenous peoples as well who who should have a, have a close bond and connection to, to Mother Nature as well. I'm always interested in talking more and, and sharing more about those things. For me, the main thing is that we maintain our respect for one another. You know, I don't expect two 
convert a scientist to my indigenous spirituality, but I like to see where we have common ground and where we can respect each other's way of doing things and way of informing the world. That's really encouraging, the fact that you're making a deliberate effort to share this knowledge, both outside your indigenous community, you know, through your dialogue with other negotiators and within your community by passing on local knowledge and culture to the next generation of future earth defenders, as you said. Maybe we can all take away this mutual respect for each other that you just mentioned. We'd all be the better for it. Tui, thank you so much for coming onto the show and sharing your story with us today. Thank you. You, you too. Bye. Take care. Whoa, Alex, what an interesting and inspiring interview. I really loved what Tui had to say about the different textures of leadership that women can bring to the discussion and how these different leadership styles can help create space for us to embrace alternative knowledge systems that are critical to addressing our shared global climate challenges. In particular, the knowledge that local and indigenous communities have accumulated over generations that is now being gathered and disseminated through the centers of indigenous and local knowledge, like Te Kupu, in New Zealand. Her emphasis on respecting one another's positions and working to find common ground is, I think, a very timely message, and one that I, for one, could certainly stand to remember and practice more in my work and my daily life. Now, we'd like to turn to a brand new segment for Season 2, something we're calling Postcards from the Future. To explain, I'll go ahead and hand it over to the man who really pulls the strings here at Climate Ready, John Matthews. Greetings. My name is John Matthews. I'm the producer for Climate Ready, as well as the co-founder for AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. I'm also the guy who first pitched the concept for this new feature called Postcards from the Future. My punishment is to be the first person to send you, our listeners, a postcard from my particular future. When we started brainstorming about a new way to hear new voices about what adaptation looks like, what it should look like, and where it might be headed, one of the big words I kept thinking about is transformation. A lot of climate adaptation work is about making small adjustments, like trying to arrange things in a crowded drawer more effectively. But once you begin thinking about climate change, sometimes the concept becomes like an infection, altering the way you see everything else. People used to say that Steve Jobs at Apple Computer created a reality distortion field around him. Climate change is exactly like that for me, making me wonder how institutions and places and decisions we make today will endure, how they'll persist and adjust over time. Transformation is a word that I first noticed in some UN scientific publications about climate change a few years ago. There are fancy, formal definitions for the word, But to me, transformation is what happens when a place becomes profoundly unfamiliar. Like when the rules you followed for decades, maybe centuries, don't make sense anymore. Rearranging things doesn't work. Transformation is like realizing that all the stuff in your drawer is gone, and there's a bunch of new stuff in there, and you might not even be able to open the drawer anymore, and maybe somebody stole a cabinet. Transformation is already well underway in the Arctic and Antarctic, and in many mountainous and high-altitude regions like the Tibetan Plateau and the Himalayas. The Andes, the Alps, the Rockies, all of those places are well along that road. A year or two of climate change in these places is more like a decade of climate change in other places. But eventually, all of us will experience transformation because of the rate and extent of climate change. From my perspective, Very few people are dealing with transformation, even in places where it's well advanced. 
Most of us think, that's the future for my grandkids. But if you're under 70, it's probably going to be your future too. With Postcards from the Future, we at Climate Ready were hoping we could begin to talk about how some of us around the planet are beginning to live in this new future, a place and time potentially so different that a lot of the decisions we're making now may seem strange, irrelevant, maybe even wrong and misguided. For some of us already thinking about these emerging conditions, our idea is to be able to send a telegraph back in time, back to right now to our younger selves, to our colleagues, our families, our, uh, maybe to decision makers that are here alive today, to tell them how to get ready, how to prepare. Some of us might be able to see a little further, maybe even see around corners. When Climate Ready, we want to hear from people who might see a bend in the road up ahead and have made a guess about what's past those trees and the horizon. They believe enough about what they see that they're making big decisions based on those insights right now, a collection of hard-won insights that become a change of direction. Decisions that might not make sense to their colleagues or families today, but that might seem totally sensible and ordinary, or even really smart in 10 or 20 or 50 years. What should we be doing differently today? How do we transform in sync, or even in advance of the big changes that are coming? That's what Postcards from the Future is supposed to be about. A message of courage and action, but not fear or despair. Ideally, it's also a short and memorable message, preferably a personal one, that's really important to you as a person and maybe has even altered your life or your family. We have some ideas about voices that sound really interesting to us, but maybe you have your own ideas? If so, please reach out. We want to hear from you about those voices that you think are interesting and relevant. So here's my postcard. When you go to your mailbox, there's a postcard inside. I always look at the picture first. You probably do too. And there you see a small, bright orange frog. The print in the picture says, Golden Toad, Rest in Peace, 1990. The other side of the card reads, give up on your grief. We don't have time for that. The card is addressed to conservation biologists. Although I now think of myself as a sustainable development person, I was trained as a conservation biologist and have read widely in the field. Conservation in its modern form is only a little over a century old. And from my perspective, it has two big ideas. First, define your targets based on some point in the past. And then try to manage your system to get back to that state. When I began working seriously in climate change issues about 15 or 16 years ago, my first reaction was of deep grief because I couldn't think of how conservation made sense anymore. You can't fence out climate change, and we know so little about how species react to climate shifts that trying to predict responses seemed impossibly hard. If we keep using our current pathways, I worried that in effect we might be steering species in places back to a past climate that may not exist again for millennia. We might be making things worse even while we're trying to make them better. For about two years, I had a funding source that asked me to visit university campuses in the U.S. and to talk to students about climate change. I had to give a pretty canned talk that I didn't have much say over. The message was supposed to be that climate adaptation was something positive we could do, that it was actionable and hopeful. But there wasn't a lot behind that message. When I got to the polar bear picture halfway through the slideshow, I often had to stop for a moment. The next slide had images of the golden toad, a Central American species that was the first that we know of to go extinct solely because of climate change, as its climate zone effectively slid off the top of its mountain habitats. 
Then there was a picture of Edith's checker spot, a North American butterfly going through a very similar type of contraction. I remember giving the talk at one university to a larger crowd, where I literally choked. I almost burst into tears at those images behind me. I hated that talk, because it bluntly reminded me of the deep losses we face, which are more or less baked in now. They're not just going to happen, they are happening. I don't think I inspired anyone in that talk. I certainly didn't come across as an optimist. But at the same time I was giving these talks at universities, I also began working directly with decision makers and water management issues around the world. They would tell me, we're really worried about uncertainty, about new types of extreme events, about what sustainability looks like. And for them, I had really good messages, positive ones, actionable messages. I felt excited and energized by those interactions. I felt like I was solving problems, mobilizing resources. I couldn't help golden toads or polar bears, but I could help a lot of other species and help people too. I could slow the next wave, maybe even stop the wave after that. Those university talks made me coin a new term to describe my own experience, climate grief. A big part of climate grief is knowing that how we view conservation, literally conserving things, by trying to keep them the same or to move them backwards doesn't make much sense anymore when things need to change and evolve. And we need to take a different approach. We can't conserve places anymore, but we can help them adjust, adapt, and transform. And to do that, we need to accept our grief. Climate change is happening. Places and things we care deeply about will be profoundly altered, and some of them will be lost to all but memory and photographs. If we can move past our grief, then our role as conservationists can shift to the right side of history, from sadness to courage. Two summers ago, I began teaching a course at a university. One of the students came up from the mountains of California. She said, I live in a place where a new kind of drought has killed millions of trees. The forests look intact, but all of these conifers are now standing dead. Millions of trees, and one day they will burn, and there probably won't be a forest that comes back. It will be something else. She was profoundly silent that day in the class, frozen in her pain, her awareness of the communities within that forest and those hills locked into an economy that was already half dead, feeling trapped. I knew she was deep in the middle of her own climate grief, but by the end of the class, she'd gone through a big evolution in herself. I feel like my job now is to help prepare for the change to come, she said, hoping these communities begin to develop a new economic and environmental basis for themselves. I had nothing but admiration for her growth and for refocusing her work. She was making a choice to move out of her grief. Last winter, I gave a talk at another university. This time, all the slides and all of the images were mine. No polar bears, no golden toads. At the end, there was a panel discussion with other people working on climate change adaptation issues. A lawyer, a climate scientist, another NGO person. The moderator asked us, finally, what can we do to prepare for changes that are happening here? The other panelists spoke about specific types of impacts that we could expect, mostly in the short term, about monitoring and forecasting, a lot of rearranging of things in the drawer. I had a different response. I said, we need to give up on the past. Big changes are coming, and we need our imagination to help us understand those changes. Computers and models are really limited here. What does the future look like without a winter snowpack? The mountains where I live burn only rarely. What happens when fires are a regular part of the landscape? In an area that's now water-rich, what happens with new kinds of water scarcity? 
or when new immigrants and community needs appear from distant places as people relocate. I spoke to the moderator afterwards, a friend of mine and a new mother. She quoted a movie called The Fellowship of the Ring. One of the main characters says, in exhaustion and desperation, I wish this bad thing had not happened in my time. An older character looks at him sadly, saying, So do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. There are so many smart people working in ecosystems and resource management. Their grief is understandable. It's reasonable. But that quote captures my hope for conservation today, for now, that we make a better decision of what to do with the time that is given us. That's all for today's show. We'd like to again thank our interview guest, Tui Shortland, as well as the brave John Matthews for kicking off our first postcard from the future. Thanks again for joining us on the Climate Ready Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us your comments and reviews. Until next time. Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Timbo.